0: Welcome to Incredible Healthcare Leaders, a podcast where we interview the healthcare industry's key players on topics like current events, their successes and their failures. I'm your host, Iman Abu I'm the CEO of Incredible Health, the fastest growing career marketplace for healthcare workers in the US and the only marketplace technology that helps hospitals and health systems hire permanent experienced nurses in 20 days or less. So today we have Javon Bay, president and CEO of Mercy Health with us, which is located in Illinois and Wisconsin. When Javon became CEO in 1989, Mercy Hospital was a standalone community hospital. Today, Mercy Health is a vertically integrated hospital system with over seven hospitals, over 8,000 employees, a home health and hospice division, and a wholly owned and operated insurance company. Since Javon became CEO in 1989, revenue has grown from $33 million to over $3 billion in revenue annually today. Excited to have you on the podcast today, Javon, and really looking forward to hearing more more about you and your background. One of your first jobs was in housekeeping at Rockford Memorial Hospital. That's right. uh, When you were in high school, which is now, I think, renamed to be the Javon B. Hospital.
1: Javon Bay Hospital, yeah.
0: Javon Bay Hospital. Tell us about this first job of being a, like a housekeeper, a janitor, whatever it was uh, at, at, uh, at this hospital.
1: Right. When I was 16, um, you know, obviously legal, a legal age to work and I needed to work. And so I, uh, I took advantage of a work study program at the local high school in Rockford, Illinois, and uh, where I would went, go to school in the morning from seven until noon and then From one to five or later, I mopped floors in the emergency department and the radiology department at Rockford Memorial Hospital. And uh, it was a great experience to get around the professionals, to be around the medical setting. I uh, actually, from there, when I got through there, I would usually go to the local grocery store. And uh, my job was to unpack the freezer truck and put all the frozen goods in the freezer. And then on uh, three nights a week, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I'd go make pizzas until midnight after that. So I I've worked three jobs to save money for college, but working at Rockefmore Hospital was a great experience. I met one of the doctors in the emergency room told him I was interested in physical therapy. I began volunteering in physical therapy and then uh, after a while I actually got a job as a physical therapy technician working in the physical therapy department and I worked there all um, all uh, after school you know from one to five and and full time in the summers all throughout uh, the rest of my high school years and in uh, summers throughout college. Uh, but it was really there then that I met the um, administrator of the hospital and I, I asked him what, you know, about hospital administration. He told me about it. And he said, you know, I think you should, to be a good generalist, which is what a hospital administrator is, you should be a specialist first. And he said, do you like physical therapy? I said, yes. And he said, so why don't you go become a physical therapist? And so, uh, and then if you're still interested, go to hospital administration. And so that's what I did. I, um, one other thing I think you'll find interesting, after I got done with my housekeeping, my other my other job was to fill all the cigarette machines that were up on the patient floors. You know, it shows you the difference, right? So, we had cigarette machines in all the nurses' waiting areas, and um, it just, you know, that people are just astounded to hear that today, but, uh, you know, the doctors would walk down the hallway smoking cigarettes, and uh, we put cigarette machines close to the patients, and uh, it's just shocking what we've learned since those days, but yeah, it's been quite a quite a ride since then, man.
0: Yeah, I didn't even know cigarette vending machines are a thing. Like, I don't even I not <laughs> even know that exists. That exists.
1: Hopefully, hopefully some people on this podcast do know. It. I'm not that ancient, alone. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Okay. So you're right. It is completely fascinating that you started as, uh, you started, uh, doing in housekeeping in high school and then became a CEO of the hospital where you were housekeeping. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit more about that journey? Like what happened between those two points of you becoming CEO and you being a housekeeper? Yeah.
1: Well, I, uh, I went to, uh, the Mayo Clinic. Um, you know, I, I was born very poor and, um, I needed to, I went to Northern Illinois University and uh, used the money working at Rock from to put my way through college. And then in order to go to physical therapy school, uh, after undergraduate school, uh, the only program in the country that didn't charge any tuition, but actually paid their therapy students to go to school for the two year program uh, was the Mayo Clinic. And so I, uh, I applied and was accepted at the Mayo Clinic. There were uh, 2000 applications and I accepted 20 students. And uh, so I went to Mayo for my uh, post undergraduate degree in physical therapy and uh, became a physical therapist. And I was working at um, St. Mary's Hospital, which was a 1,250 bed hospital associated with Mayo. And I was walking home to my apartment one night after work. And um, soon after I graduated and I saw this little nun in uh, old clothes and the big farmer's hat on starting to work in her garden. It was in the spring. She was trying to lift a big bag of fertilizer and put it in the wheelbarrow. And I just said, you know, sister, can I help you lift that big bag of fertilizer? She said, sure. So I helped her put it in the wheelbarrow. And then she said, here, and she handed me a, a, a spade shovel and said, help me dig up the soil. It's really hard. So I took my white smock off and spent a couple hours helping her dig up the soil. And um, and then um, she uh, she just, we were talking for those two hours and she asked me about me and where I came from and the family I came from and what I wanted to do and how I liked physical therapy. And I told her my dream someday was to go into hospital administration. And so we just finished working and she thanked me. And then, I don't know, it was probably a week or a week and a half, two weeks later that my supervisor in physical therapy came to me and he said, hey, you need to go to the CEO's office. And I said, why? What, what did I do? He goes, I don't know, but I'm glad I'm not you, you know. And so this hospital, St. Mary's is multi blocks long. So I walked... Uh, it seemed like, you know, three or four blocks to the opposite end uh, where administration was and went in there and waited. And, uh, they brought me into the CEO office and it turned out to be this little nun that I was helping in the garden who was the CEO of the hospital.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Her name is
1: Sister Generals Gervais. And she said, Hey, uh, you told me you liked hospital. You want to get in hospital administration. How would you like to spend a year, uh, interning with me? And I said, geez, that'd be fantastic. So I did that. I spent a year working with her and, and then, uh, I applied to the University of Minnesota for the Master's in Hospital and Healthcare Administration. That was a two-year program. I went to that and I did my residency out in Seattle at the Virginia Mason Hospital Mason Clinic, and they actually offered me a, a job, but then I got a call from Sister General saying, "Hey, one of my three vice presidents uh, it was a sister, decides uh, she doesn't want to handle the stress, you know, of being a vice president, and would, would you want to come back and be my vice president?" So here, here I was, 26 years old, just finished my master's program, and had just been asked to serve as vice president, one of only three vice presidents in the largest hospital at that time in the world. It's still the largest hospital under one roof in the United States, uh, St. Mary's. And so I went back there at uh, 26 as vice president. And you got to remember, two years before that, I was an intern. And so all these department directors that now reported to me, who were in their 40s and 50s and beyond. And there had department budgets as large as a lot of community hospitals were now reporting to me. So just think about that. Think about being 26 and making regular presentations to the Board of Governors of the Mayo Clinic and being one of three VPs of the largest hospital in the in the world at the time. And uh, it was amazing that she gave me that opportunity, but um, you know, I had to prove myself. And uh, it was kind of tough going for the first couple of years to get fully accepted by these older department directors that knew me two years before as an intern. But it all worked out well. I ended up spending ten years there, and we merged the three entities together—the Mayo Clinic and the two hospitals—onto one balance sheet. And then it was at, at that time that uh, uh, the nuns kind of were turning over ultimate control to uh, to the Mayo Clinic. And I uh, I had an opportunity to go uh, join the Doctor Charity National Health System at Providence Hospital in Southfield, Michigan, as a chief operating officer. So I did that, and uh, I stayed there a little over three years. And that's really where I started to work. And experiment and develop with hospital physician integration. After three years there, I wanted to get back. My mother was in Rockford, Illinois, and she was ill, and I wanted to get back uh, more uh, to the Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, Illinois area. And so I took a job as CEO. what was then Mercy Hospital, and uh, Mercy was in tough straits. Small, you know, 240 bed hospital, uh, just north of the Wisconsin border in Janesville, Wisconsin.
0: That was actually going to be you, you. teed up the next question. I mean, I was going to ask. Okay, so you become so now. You're at this point. It's it's late the late eighties. You're now the CEO of Mercy Hospital, and you've inherited quite a big set of problems. Can you walk us through what was going on at the time with the hospital and 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 kind of what you did to turn it around?
1: Yeah. So it was it was really a tough um, you know situation because the hospital hadn't added a physician medical staff in for over four years. Other uh, health systems in Madison and Milwaukee had put clinics in taking patients away uh, from Mercy. The physicians, there were only 89 physicians, and they were organized in two multi-specialty medical groups. And one of the groups had a budget almost as large as the hospital, $32 million, and the hospital was $33 million. They, I think, were wanting to bring the hospital under their balance sheet. So I sat with the board of directors of the hospital, and I said, you know, this clinic wants to either bring the hospital... To their balance sheet, and uh, community control will be lost over the hospital through community representatives on the board, or we'll have to, in a sense, develop an integrated system with physicians and hospitals uh, as one entity. And he said, "Well, we want to keep you know community direction over the hospital, and so we want you to develop a integrated system." So that's what I did. I it was very controversial. You know 31 years ago and i developed a, what i called a physician hospital partnership model and it was a method of bringing physicians in under professional service agreements that met all the qualifications and eyes of the irs of having them be considered if you will part of the tax-exempt entity employees of the hospital but it didn't put doctors on the time clock punching system they basically were paid a percentage of their net professional patient billings just like they would have been in their private practices. But you had to develop the right culture. I had to develop the right culture among all the department directors and other staff in the hospital to understand that the better that we serve the physicians in their practices, the more successful the entire system will be. So it was developing the culture for vertical integration, hospitals and physicians working as one. But it was still very controversial. The one physician group that had planned to take over the hospital, they didn't like it and they rebelled in all kinds of ways. We started a new family practice residency program that somebody, I don't know who fired bomb uh, the new building right after we uh, structured. They brought lawsuits uh, against me. Uh, my family was um, kind of plagued and tormented, you know, cause there was controversy in the community because the physicians were rebelling. They, they didn't want the hospital to form its own physician group. And so the one physician group, the Jamesville Medical Center, which is one of the two joined the hospital, we became one vertically integrated system. And we continued to develop and bring on board, uh, hire a number of subspecialists, cardiac surgeons, neurosurgeons, many subspecialists, and we continued to develop this group. And we really were a forerunner 30 years ago in developing a community hospital, developing a vertically integrated physician hospital system. As you say today, we have 800 multi-specialty physicians that are fully On our model, you know, in the eyes of the U.S., considered employees of the Mercy Health, and we're located all throughout southern Wisconsin, northern Illinois. Seven hospitals, we have 85 facilities of what we call hospitals without beds, where I quite frankly, my motto is to develop an emergency room, freestanding emergency room with ORs, 30 to 40 multi specialty physicians, all of the major ancillary services, radiology lab, et cetera. And uh, for the ORs, we'll have 23 hour recovery beds. And we figure we can do about 70, 80% of the procedures done in a community hospital because so much of the care today is done on an outpatient basis.
0: I want to go back to a point you said earlier. So, you know, nowadays it's very common to have integrated systems, right? And to have physician groups as part of a health system and every single state has many of these, right? 30 years ago, this was very, very rare. And you're you're probably one of the first in the country to kind of ad- adopt this model. Can you tell us more about your, your thinking at the time? Like, was there an example that you were looking at? Was there a, a best practice out there? Was there a mentor or advisor that was helping you figure this out? Like, how, how did you even decide to, you know, that, hey, well, let's bring, let's create this physician group and let's make this uh, integrated?
1: You know, that's a great question. So my years at the Mayo Clinic, when I was at St. Mary's, we had to close the medical staff to the Male physicians, and so my job, besides running many of the purely hospital departments, was to also uh, work closely with the male physicians in the ancillary departments of radiology, lab, physical therapy, and many other departments that were actually, in a sense, male clinic departments, but in the hospital. And so that's where I learned the collegiality of how hospitals and physicians could work as one team. and And I did that for ten years, and then when I went to Providence with the Darsa Charity, I developed that. Uh, Providence was a a hospital, but we developed a group of 90 physicians along the same line. The difference in a Providence, what I started there, what I've taken to fruition and started in Janesville was normally prior to what we did at Mercy, the Mayo Clinic, the Marshfield Clinic in Marshfield, Wisconsin, uh, the Gunderson Clinic in La Crosse, they were all physician dominated boards of directors and physician governed, if you will. The big demarcation that I think we were one of the first in the country, if not the first, was to take a community lay board, if you will, and have the physicians be an integrated group, just like you'd have at the Mayo Clinic, but not be dominated by a physician-governed board, but by a community-governed board, You know, run by a lay CEO versus a physician CEO. Three decades ago, that was just unheard of. And very, very controversial. But it it also led to far extreme better quality in community hospitals. Let me give you just one example. In the year 2000, this would be about 11 years after I was at Mercy, I had a nurse come to me and say, she's crying, and, and she was an intensive care nurse. And she said, you know, one of the family doctors was just working in the intensive care, tried to intubate a 38 year old woman, and did it incorrectly and there was a devastating result for the woman, terrible, that, that should have never occurred. And, and it just bothered this intensive care nurse, she was just bawling. And I decided that right then and there that I was going to close our intensive care unit to any physician that did not have critical care training or was a surgeon. That meant the internists, the family docs who had followed their patients and they'd admit them to the hospital, and they had to be in the intensive care, they could visit their patients, but they couldn't be the primary caregiver any longer, their patients in the intensive care, because they didn't have really the qualifications to be. Well, I was uh, sued by the medical staff for that, and we ended up winning the case. But what was interesting is 11 years later, There was a national group called the Quality Group called the LeapFrog Group, which was General Motors, IBM, some of the largest corporations in the country, came together, and they formed this big commission of how to improve quality in America's hospitals. And the first thing on their list was to close the intensive care units to only qualified uh, intensive care physicians who had qualified intensive care training We did that 11 years earlier at Mercy. I remember four years after we did it in 2004, going into kind of a nationally known hospital. And they still had an open intensive care unit where any doc with no intensive care training, no critical care training, could go in and and work with patients. So, you know, we had 11 years before made the number one uh, leapfrog, if you will, of what was done. So we were always cutting edge. That physician hospital integration Allowed us to really achieve quality standards that far surpassed. And frankly, it's why we were the first vertically integrated system in the United States to be recognized and receive the Malcolm Baldrige National Quality Award. Seven years after I made that decision, in 2007, I walked into the Oval Office to receive the highest award for excellence from President George W. Bush in the Oval Office. Uh, We were the first vertically integrated system to receive the Malcolm Baldrige National Quality Award for overall excellence. And that was because of being able to have the physicians in the hospital work together across all departments as one team, as one team. And um, it's truly the way to get the best quality and the most cost-effective care.
0: Got it. Okay. Yeah. So I've actually, uh, I've seen, I've seen that photo of you and George W. Bush <laughs> shaking hands in the Oval Office when you're accepting the, the Ballbridge Award. And honestly, even if you Google your name now, that's like one of the top photos that shows up, which is kind of funny. You've won awards, accolades for, for this vertical integration and for the integration of the physicians into the health system. So was this the key to turning Mercy Hospital around? Back then in the 90s?
1: It was absolutely the key. It was a a single key. Forming that vertical integrated system with the doctors is what allowed us, for many years, we were ranked as the fastest growing health system in the United States for same-store growth, meaning uh, growing organically, not as a result of mergers or acquisitions. And it's all because of that vertical integration.
0: All right. And then I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. Um, When you are a VP at age 26, or even even as a CEO, you're quite a young CEO as well. And you have people that are older than you reporting to you, people with much more experience. It's something I experience day to day myself running Incredible Health. How do you deal with a situation like that? Kind of, what are your what are your tactics and tips for the young leaders that are listening to this?
1: You know, I think it it has to do with not just age difference. I think it has to do with racial difference, sex difference, with any differences. I've always been focused on results and on problem solving, and I find that no matter what the age difference, like the way I started working with these 40 something, 50 somethings, even 60 something as a 26 year old was, I wasn't calling them in to socialize or to compare personal lives. I was trying to solve problems and I would get into the problems and seek their thoughts, their insights, their input, their advice. It seemed to create an openness. It just took away barriers of age and anything else and it was like we were all part of the same team here, the same group. And part of it has to do with my upbringing, where I came from. That I have, I had one of my vice presidents say one time, he said, You have zero ego. I mean, you have like no ego. And I think that probably has helped me because I don't get into who's right, who's wrong. It's all about solving the problem and meeting the challenge. I think that, that just natural style of openness seeking thoughts, insights, advice, trying to get to a solution. It seems to uh, engender, even it breaks down barriers of people who might have their guard up because I'm walking in at this young faced kid looking and I'm this old, but he's right away just totally seeking my advice, seeking my input, giving his thoughts on how to get to a a solution. That's to me what I've found all throughout my career.
0: So in in recent years, one of your newer hospitals was named after you, right It's called the Jayvon Bay Hospital. Can you share that story with us? How did that happen? How did that come to be?
1: Yeah, so we built this five hundred and five million dollar new hospital, and I was it was all done and um, and I, the board just called me in one day. they had been in what was called executive session about a couple other issues and um and they just said, we want you know, we've decided to name the new hospital after you and I said, what? and they said, yeah we we want to do that. you've totally over th- three decades, you've taken Mercy from, you know, what was a small dying hospital to an incredibly successful, you know, three billion dollar integrated system, and taken to the Oval Office and and. I said, well, shouldn't you wait till I'm dead (laughs) or something till I die? (laughs) And and they said, we may not be around. We may not be around. But they said, no, we, you know, we we don't want to name it something and then have to change the name. It's new. There's no name on it. And so they just made the decision. It was unanimous. And they made it without me. And um, it's funny. It's just, it's almost, I can't even relay it. You know, sometimes people talk about themselves in a third person. It's almost like. When I see the name on there or whatever, it's like a third person. And I don't let it it hasn't done anything to me. Do you know what I mean? I don't know how to explain that. Yeah, it, so but it, it's, it, a- it's 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 so weird to go in, you know, and just see that name on it that I just act like it's somebody else. I don't know how else to think about it. You know, yeah. and then
0: how did that how did how did it feel when you heard when you heard that news?
1: I, I I was I was over I was shocked, overwhelmed. I really did say I wasn't sure how everyone was going to react to it, you know. I was more concerned I just said, don't you think we ought to wait? And then their argument was, if we put another name on it, then we'll have to take that name off and change it. We don't want to do that. And but I was, I was really surprised. I mean, there was, I think everybody really reacted well. They, you know, when you've been someplace for over three decades, and there were 500 jobs, 500 people who had livelihoods at Mercy when I came, and there's now over 8,000. I think that people, um, I don't know. I, I think. It was very well received, I guess. So that that made it nice.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty amazing story, honestly. Given where you started, you said you mentioned you said poor kid. Yeah, I know you had many siblings, 10, twelve, uh, yeah, yeah, 12 children. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: We <laughs> li- 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 lived in a little home, lived in a little home with three bedrooms. I-, I grew up in a in a little tiny bedroom with three sets of bunk beds. Six boys, right? And it was like growing up in an army barracks with my five older brothers.
0: Wow, and this is this is in Illinois, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rockville, Illinois, and we had one- listen, we had one bathroom with one sink, one toilet, and one bathtub, no shower for 14 of us. Wow. Think about that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. You've come a long way. This is like, this is like the American dream. Like, this, yeah. is like, this is an awesome story. Yeah. The other thing that Mercy Health has achieved is many, many awards. So many awards and accolades during during your time there. One of them I wanted to chat about more is is the magnet recognition for nursing excellence. For those of you that don't know, Magnet is a recognition that hospitals and health systems can get uh, when they really excel in, in, in nursing, um, and it's it's so it is another way to to attract uh, nurses to their health system as well in what is like highly competitive
1: uh, talent market.
0: So can you walk us through your process of getting that Magnet recognition and 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 any advice you might have for other leaders that are trying to get it?
1: Yeah. So that's that's a. First of all, you you cited a tremendous example from my standpoint or a benefit as CEO is it does really help attract some of the finest nurses in the industry, especially in highly specialized positions that are hard to find because they know that uh, a magnet-recognized health system or hospital has had to show an absolute long-term dedication to the highest quality standards. And I think really good nurses want to work and be associated with Uh, healthcare entities that do put quality first and so it really has helped us in our recruitment tremendously. We actually achieved Magnet the first time in 2014 and every five years you have to do it again so we did it again in 2019 only even as a larger system because we had integrated Legacy Mercy had integrated with the Rockford Health System at that time to make Mercy Health so we went back and got it as an entire health system but it helps to attract and retain your best nurses. And the other thing that I wanted to do it for is it really helps to put in standards and protocols of care that I think leads to more consistent, I would say, safety and quality standards. So the key is consistency. As a health system and where, where I sit, you don't want to have some patients receive one brand of care and other patients receive another brand of care. You want to provide the same overall excellence of care for all patients, and to do that, it can't just be episodic and up to whether a nurse chooses to do it or not. It it needs to be, in a sense, hardwired in, if you will. And I think Magnet helps to hardwire in quality and safety standards, and it shows it shows in our clinical outcomes. And it really is an advantage today uh, as we get more and more into uh, you know government monitoring our quality and our ACO, or accountable uh, care network, and so forth, and meeting those standards, uh, being magnet really takes our caregivers, our nurses, who spend the majority of time with our patients, and it hard- hardwires in a consistent, quality, safety standard, and I can't emphasize it enough. And one thing I'll say is, when I talked to the chief nurse of Rockford Health System when we first started to integrate back five, six years ago, she had actually Kind of had this goal, like she'd say to the board or the nurses, yeah, we want to do magnet, but she never, I could tell, was convicted. She wasn't like, we're going to do it and this is a time frame and we're getting on a path, we're laying out this critical path with milestones and we're going to go after it. And that's what we had done at Mercy. And you can't just, I don't think a CEO or top management team can just leave it to the chief nurse. I think the chief nurse is, is kind of the leader in the process. But we look at it as an award, as a recognition for our entire health system. Because to me, it takes all pieces, right? So our environmental service people that go into a patient's room, I tell them, you're not just going in to clean the floors. You're going in as part of the patient care team to help brighten up the patient's day, to say hello, to ask them how they're doing, ask them if the windows closed, would they like the drapes open, uh, before they leave, can I get you anything? Do you need anything? If they need the nurse, get the nurse. I, we try to pull everybody in to be part of the care team. So whether it's the faucet that's dripping, driving the patient, you know, nuts the drippy faucet with the maintenance guy or the dietary worker bringing in the food or the housekeeper that's cleaning the floor, magnet is something that really takes everybody. And so we don't just make it a nursing award. We really make it a total Health System Total Hospital Team Award, or goal, I should say. You get the award after you achieve the goal. You know, obviously, the, the CNO becomes the leader uh, with the 100% support of the CEO. You can't just have it be uh, something that you kind of plan to do someday. You've got to just make up your mind, set out a critical path with milestones, and go for it, and don't stop until you achieve it.
0: Got it. Okay. And what is it that makes Mercy Health a, a great place to work for nurses?
1: Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I don't know. Talk about the awards. Um, the AARP, the, you probably never, you don't need to worry about that, Iman, for another <laughs> 50 years, AARP. But they, they started a program some years ago about the best places to work. And uh, they, it's a national at Mercy. And the first year that they did it, Mercy was their. Uh, number one uh, best place to work in the whole United States. I ended up testifying in front of Congress on aging. And we had multiple programs in there where we allowed our nurses who had been with us at least 20 years and were at a certain age or older. We noticed their husbands were retiring from General Motors or other places, and they're wanting to go to Florida or somewhere for two or three months in the winter, even just a month. And they couldn't because they were... So we developed a program where our long-term committed nurses who were a certain age could actually take off for the winter with their husbands or for months at a time and keep all their benefits in place. And uh, they kept accruing, and then they'd come back and take right off when they came back. And, and we did that because we believe so strongly in the mentoring and the modeling that our senior nurses give, and I don't just mean our leaders, I'm talking about our other nurses on the floor, our long-term nurses who've learned the Mercy way, we call it. They're the role models for the younger nurses we bring in. So Mercy is a great place to work. I mean, we promote advancement. We, we want to see our nurses help them. We pay them financially and give them the time uh, to get to higher levels, not just their BSN, but to master's program. Um, we've had nurses go, we've helped them get their MHA degree and then they end up becoming a department director of surgery or whatever it may be. And so it's uh, we're all about advancement, education development. so yeah, I think it's it's you know our we have very long term nurses, very low turnover in our nursing range.
0: Okay, that's fantastic. so you've you've really focused on flexibility from what it sounds like as well as career advancement.
1: Yeah, it, flexibility today, you know that life work balance with families is key, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you're obviously a very hardworking person. (laughs) You definitely focus on problem solving, and you're very results oriented. Where where does that drive come from?
1: Well, you know, it it really comes from. As I said, as a little kid, I uh, I figured out if I can just tell another. I'm a storyteller, you know. So when I was eight years old, back then. There would be kids that would drive, would ride a bicycle, and they had a cooler on the front of their bike. It was like a little bicycle ice cream truck. Have you ever, you ever seen those kind of things? They would go around the neighborhoods ringing the bells, and they had ice cream bars and popsicles and everything. And I was eight years old. I was only in the third grade, and I heard that ice cream truck coming down the street. And I ran in and asked my mom for a nickel for a popsicle, and uh, she didn't have a nickel to give me. She didn't have a nickel. I mean, that's how poor we were. And, you know, we had 14 years. My dad never made over $12,000 a year. And so, believe it or not, you don't think a kid eight years old, and, and like a kid today, probably wouldn't. But I had, I just kind of realized to the degree an eight-year-old could that if I wanted anything, I was going to have to earn it. I just decided to, I was, I was doing all our own lawn mowing, cutting out the dandelions, weed pulling. And I started knocking on neighborhood doors and asking them if they needed any lawn work. I remember this one widow said, "Yeah, I'd like you to clean out my garden, you know, and uh, get it ready for planting." And she and I worked there, you know, all day long, long day, worked hard, and she was out there working too. And at the end of the day, she handed me a five-dollar bill. Back then, that was a lot of money. Yep. <laughs> and, and she handed me, you know, for where where I wanted, I couldn't. I, I mean, a week, whatever it was before, however many days or week before, I did, I couldn't get hold of a nickel for a popsicle. I now had a five-dollar bill. And that did it for me. I realized that work for me was a key. So I often say that my biggest advantage in life was not having any advantage. I really realized that the key for me was if I wanted to achieve anything, if I wanted anything, I was going to have to work for it. And um, I was only 10 years old when I got my first paper out. And by the time I was 12, I had three paper outs. And I had other kids delivering the papers for me. And I did all the collection and I had a regular lawn mowing and snow shoveling crew. I, I had to stay that way and was, uh, because anything beyond a bunk bed among the six and some basic hand-me-down clothes for my brothers and some basic food, I knew I was going to have to earn. And I find that uh, necessity, you know, uh, is a is mother of invention. And people ask me today, and even my wife, who's been married, she asked me, she goes, Because out of all 12 of us, I was the only one that went to college. Now, later on in life, after I went, a couple of my sisters, when they were older, in their 30s, 40s, and married, they went back to nursing school. But I was the only one of the six, I was the only one that went to college. You know, so I gave you some of the other stories. So it was just, there was something in me, but I have to credit it, to be honest, I have to credit it, to seeing, being in high school, and I went to a high school that was probably, uh, it was back in 1968. That's the year of the big racial riots where the Chicago Democratic Convention in Chicago burnt down half of Chicago. A lot of terrible race relations in that time. And I was in a high school that was probably 70% black and 30% white. There was a a card on the wall that talked about a work-study program that you could start classes early in the morning and get jobs, certain jobs around town. And one was a housekeeping job at Rockford Memorial. And I believe that getting that job, even mopping floors in a professional setting is what turned me on it lighted a fire under me seeing these doctors you know and and I guess it was I was fortuitous that I wasn't mopping some black hallway but my job was to mop the floors in the radiology and emergency room and emergency rooms never slow down it's not like you can go there after hours so I'd be in there mopping in the cast room and they'd be bringing in you know emergencies and I saw these professionals working and and it gave me the desire to want to get out of the environment that I was in and make something more of myself. And I became laser focused on that. So that's really what, Got it. yeah.
0: All right. So you look, you've been incredibly successful, but I guess I'd like to ask you a question not about success, but about failure. Uh, what What is your greatest failure professionally and and what did you learn from it?
1: Well, I have to admit, uh, it it really came not too long ago, and and I say this to a lot of the younger folks in administration today that are fellows, right? So when I had this advantage with Sister Generals, I've always made it a big commitment to want to bring in administrative fellows who are in their master's program. They finish their master's, they got to do a year of fellowship. And I've had 55 fellows from different university MHA programs around the country Uh, come through Mercy, we've hired every one of them, and um, uh, some are vice presidents today. I say to them that what I've noticed the most over the 43 years since I've been a vice president and above is that today we spend, unfortunately, as much time, money, and effort trying to collect for the services that we offer, and even though it's only pennies on the cost of care. And so that whole, it's called revenue cycle, that whole billing collection, trying to deal with these insurance companies that are always trying to figure out how not to pay and delay paying is a massive job. And we, you know, I had a CFO for 20 years who was, and I didn't find this out until December of, um, it was December of, uh, December of 19, that we, and it was actually an employee down in the bowels of the revenue cycle department where there's probably 400 employees who asked to talk to me totally confidentially and told me, Mr. B, are you aware of the problems we're having in the revenue cycle? I said, no, I've, uh, the CFO and uh, hasn't talked to me or anyone else. And well, we're having major problems. I mean, we're way behind. So I started investigating and it Turned out the CFO had changed the system out and he was way behind. He was showing uh, receivables as collectible that in fact had to be written off. And it was hundreds of millions of dollars And it was a major, major problem. And then this was right as we're going into COVID. So the idea of this receivable problem and COVID, but what it taught me is Ronald Reagan's old statement, trust, but verify. So I trusted my CFO, who I'd worked with for 20 years, so explicitly that I never dreamt that he would keep something from me and the board of letting hundreds of millions of dollars of Bills that he didn't collect accumulate um, and not not tell us and show them uh, on the on the financial statements as collectible when in fact they weren't, and so um, it taught me that uh, no matter you know how long uh, that it's you know you should never stop trusting, but you should never stop verifying. I mean, you asked me for it, but that's that's it. That's probably the worst uh, in forty three years that I've had, it. and that was you know I look back at myself and it's because I. I would known this guy for 20 years, he'd done a great job, that's why he lasted 20 years. I never dreamt that he'd do something like that. So I think, I think that old adage that um, people can get things in their life, or things can happen, and when you're responsible for an area or a division or other people or people's lives, and I have 8,000 families that depend on their livelihood. And eight hundred physicians. So anyway, that's probably what I consider the biggest failure that I've had. All
0: right, and I'm assuming he's not there anymore. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> and you're you're in the thick of it. You're in the thick of getting out of this situation right now.
1: Well, yeah, I thank God we're yeah we're we're really coming out of it. I I served as a CFO and a CEO to get out of it for probably a year, and now I've got a good new uh, revenue cycle manager, uh, vice president, who I recruited away from a top consulting firm that had been helping problems all around there helping the hospitals around the country solve their revenue cycle. So uh, she's a lot like you, very, uh, very results-oriented, <laughs> very results-oriented.
0: That's the only way to be. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> okay, so uh, we, we ask all, all our guests this. When, when you look back on your life, what, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you?
1: The kindest thing? Um, I would actually have to say that it was Sister Generals who – I have a model that says to suit up. I said this to my kids all while they're growing up. I have six children. I said the key to life is to suit up, show up where you're supposed to be, and do the next right thing. And it's a long haul that counts. And there's, I'd say to them, no one exam that you blow, no one job you don't get, no one girlfriend or boyfriend you lose, no one thing in life is going to make or break your life for the long haul. It's the long term that counts and so I said, if you suit up and show up and do the next right thing every day, because we only live life one moment at a time, you'll find that over time your life will be a success. People get themselves derailed by something going bad and they think their life's coming to an end, and it doesn't, unless they want to accept it that way. Because really it isn't what happens to us in life that counts, it's how we handle it. And if you look at it and say, well, this is just a, uh, a setback for this moment or this day or whatever, and you just de- commit to getting up the next day and suiting up and showing up where you're supposed to be, no matter what stage of life you are, and doing the next right thing. Over that, you look back and you go, wow, in the aggregate, it's really been a success. And, you know, I'd have to say that when I was walking home after physical therapy, working in PT, and I saw that little nun's. Struggling to lift the bag. If I hadn't stopped to ask her, does she need help, which was the right thing to do, or when she said, God, my back's killing me, this ground's harder, would you mind helping me break this ground up? If I'd said, Oh, geez, I'm sorry, I'm too busy, but I did the right thing. And then in turn, she opened up the doors to my whole future career.
0: Okay, that's, that's a pretty amazing example. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for your time today, Siobhan. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing with, with everyone all the all of these awesome stories. You are a good storyteller.
1: <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you, Iman. And in another 40 years, 50 years, 80 years, when you're as old as I am, you're going to have yeah. all these stories too <laughs> to tell.
0: <laughs> no, what are you talking about? You're still in your 30s, right?
1: <laughs> there you go. In my, my, in my mind, I certainly am. I can tell you that.
0: All right. Thanks again for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Incredible Healthcare Leaders. If you enjoyed the show, share the podcast with a friend and tweet at Join Incredible to let us know. We may give you a shout out on an upcoming episode. Remember to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Incredible Healthcare Leaders is produced by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Our theme music is from Purple Planet Music. I'm Iman Abouzaid. See you next time.